Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network, and this is your host, David Kunzman, and we are here to talk about the fascinating new book entitled Or Speak, Nietzsche's Victory Over Nihilism by Least Van Voxel, with our guest who wrote the introduction, Michael Greinke, a tutor at St. John's College. So we usually like to start out our interview by uh, asking our guests a little bit about their background and how you came to be part of the work, the book. Well, thank you. Um, my, my background is uh, in political philosophy, at least that's what I earned my PhD in at Boston College. And uh, I met Lise Van Boxel, the author, um, while she was doing her master's degree there. And we'd been longtime and close friends for over 25 years. And we share a deep interest in Nietzsche. I've been devoted to Nietzsche for the past 38 years of my life and have done some translating and publishing of translations of Nietzsche. Uh, and Lise wrote this book uh, as a kind of revision of her dissertation, but it became a very significant revision and became an, uh, a truly a separate entity as she worked it through. Uh, when she had this book uh, accepted by the publisher, Political Animal Press, she shortly thereafter was diagnosed with a, a very aggressive form of lung cancer and only lived a few weeks after that diagnosis. Uh, throughout that time in which she was quite aggressively trying to, to fight her cancer, uh, she remained very interested in the publication of this book. And we had many discussions about her vision for it. And there was one thing she wanted added uh, was a kind of introduction. She discussed with me what kinds of things she wanted in it, how she wanted it to be done. So that task to write that introduction fell to me after her death. And I uh, oversaw the very light editing that was done between the time of her death and, and this book's publication. So I guess just to start out for the uninitiated, even though most of our guests will know, uh, who was Friedrich Nietzsche? And why did he see nihilism as a threat to life? So uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was... Uh, a philosopher born in Germany, uh, in the Prussian region of Germany. And uh, he enjoyed uh, considerable popularity at, at the very end of his writing career. It was just dawning on the world that he was uh, a very important thinker. This book that, uh, or the, the nihilism that Nietzsche was very interested in fighting is essentially a, a kind of wearing out of the human spirit, a coming to despair of any uh, possibility 
of a good and productive future for human beings. And I think as uh, Lisa's book traces this nihilism, it really turns out in Nietzsche's view uh, to be a kind of result of an orientation of this world toward another world, an afterworld or a, a world that's conceived of as, as being populated by beings that don't come into being and pass away, but are always a world that conceives of completion and perfection as coming to a, a static condition that becomes unchanging, a world that conceives of truth itself as absolute and unchanging, and regards all the th sorts of things, especially that one looks to in the afterlife, as being the model for what is good and what is admirable and what is praiseworthy. And the consequence of that, as Nietzsche traces it and as Lise presents it, is that our everyday experience of the world, which has no beings of that sort, but only things coming into being and passing away, only becoming, gets denigrated in our sight and becomes uh, uninteresting and unmotivating. And he sees basically the whole tradition of philosophy starting maybe from Plato and probably up to Schopenhauer as part of this part of this epoch of nihilism. Is that correct? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I mean, it's a developing story. And the I think the forms in which nihilism takes shape in human life change considerably from a kind of orientation toward an an other world, a transcendent world of, of pure being and pure truth that is in some way accessible to the human mind as conceived of by Plato and Socrates, all the way up to the kind of contemporary world where people are losing faith in, in any such pretensions to transcendent possibilities and where the predominant transcendent possibilities, uh, those that are represented by, by religion especially, become less and less believable to human beings. And yet still the orientation in that direction, which denigrates what's available to us in this world, the non-transcendent, the, the transient world, it continues to denigrate that world without really having anything to offer in its place so that one gets open nihilism or open um, willing of nothingness. And we even see Nietzsche uh, charging things on it on the service that might be antithetical to religion, like radical politics and uh, the scientific ideal or something. Even those fall under nihilism. Is that correct? Yeah, I think especially... Uh... Well, I mean, the, the radical politics, especially, I suppose, predominantly the communist uh, proposals, which are openly anti-religious, are in Nietzsche's eyes still a, a continuation of this, essentially, an orientation that opposes itself to human nature and to human instincts to this world and tries to transform it into something that has never been possible here. And I think with the 
the scientific approach, maybe this is the most radical and interesting thing that emerges in Nietzsche's analysis in the genealogy. And I think Lisa's book does a good job of coming around to, to point to these things. Those who aspire to truthfulness at all, at all costs, above all things, who think that they are opposed to uh, the uh, ascetic religious beliefs are themselves still agents of the morality that belongs to that uh, um, ascetic movement. And in that respect, they're still nihilists themselves. Interesting. Uh, one thing that I found fascinating in this book is that uh, other maybe commentators, interpreters of Nietzsche place different texts as central as a way of understanding Nietzsche's project. Some people may pick, you know, Dust Bugs or Arthustra because of, you know, the, the, the grand poetry or uh, the gay science because that is the, <clears throat> I guess, the womb in which all the ideas that will later develop into the mature works, but least places the genealogy of morals, uh, not not the works that center the aphoristic or the, the, the poetic, but just the, uh, the three essays. Uh, why do you think Lise would place the genealogy of morals as the central text in which to understand Nietzsche? Well, I think there Lise is following out um, textual clues that are contained in the, on the genealogy of morals, especially uh, a small clue that she p- makes quite a lot of in Nietzsche's preface, which describes his own, intellectual history from the age of 13 when he tried to solve the problem of evil and a development of that. And I think Lise takes that anecdote as a real centering clue. It it identifies the problem of nihilism as it's emerging. It's first uh, emerging maybe in the context of the problem of evil for Nietzsche. It identifies that as the problem that belongs primarily to Nietzsche. And then I think later parts of the text, especially the beginning of the third essay of the genealogy of morals, least points to the very opening section of that as making reference to a previous thought, especially with a kind of question that Nietzsche asked posed to the reader. He says, am I understood? And then there's an ellipsis. And then he says, have I been understood? And I think least makes a special uh, note of the past perfect, have I been understood, as a way to try to indicate that in the genealogy, Nietzsche is really performing a kind of summary. And uh, I think her explication tries to show that in that one section of the genealogy of morals, there's, I think, what she calls a diamond hard condensation, or not, that's not precisely what she says. Uh, She says it has diamond hard density, I'm sorry, that it encapsulates his whole prior teaching. So the genealogy of morals turns out to be, it belongs to the the period of, at least in in Nietzsche's short lifetime, what was his mature works. There's a certain, it's a post-Zarathustran work. It's it's a, a supplement to Beyond Good and Evil. And so there's a good case to be made that a lot of what Nietzsche was most interested in is coming together here. And then I think the better case that Lisa's is making is the problem that he identifies as his problem, as central to his thought and inescapable throughout his intellectual career is the problem that the genealogy uh, directs itself to, which is nihilism. 
So briefly in your answer, you <clears throat> you presented the in the introduction of the genealogy. Uh, Nietzsche explains it, uh, when he was 13, he tried to discuss the origin of evil, and he identifies as two, two prejudices, the theological and the moral, and they, he saw them tied together. Uh, what were the theological and the moral prejudice, prejudice, and what are the consequences when they become unraveled? Well, I think the, the theological prejudice was the, the prejudice that regarded the good as belonging to this other realm outside of the world of coming into being and passing away. So it's the prejudice that regards the good and the true as being absolute and unchanging. The moral prejudice was what Nietzsche, I think, refers to as a kind of dogmatism in Beyond Good and Evil, the tendency to universalize moral claims. So the claim that what's good for one person and in one circumstance is good for everyone in regardless of particular circumstances. So the the two were the absolutizing and the eternalizing, that's the theological prejudice, and the universalizing, that's the moral prejudice. I think when you take them apart, as Nietzsche indicates when he was able to separate them, he freed himself from some of their grip. The, maybe the most important thing about taking them apart is that the moral, the moral prejudice gains a certain authority from the theological prejudice that has the claim that there's a stable, unchanging, and authoritative source for the moral claims is taken away when you separate the, the theological prejudice from the moral prejudice. And in the after that's taken away, I think one's attention comes to seek for a, a different source for the moral claims, and that turns one's eye eventually to human beings as the or originators and creators of moral systems. That turning really frees oneself, I think, even from the grip of particular morals by seeing that there are both human beings who are responsible for the moral claims and that there are differing moral claims stemming from differing human beings of different sorts and uh, those who have different aims. So one of the chapters is entitled um, Philosophy is Genealogy is Psychology. And the title is a gene, and the and title is the, uh, of the main work that Lise wants to focus on is the genealogy of morals. Uh, what is the gene, genealogical process? And why does Nietzsche want to make this, I guess, the backbone of his philosophy? So I think most of us probably are familiar with, uh, if we're familiar with the term genealogy, we're familiar with it uh, from family trees, um, which are basically maps of descent. And I think Nietzsche sees the world that we live in as populated by beings that are coming into being, passing away, always changing, and that they all come from previous uh beings that were in existence so that everything that exists now, every being that exists now, every person that exists now comes from prior, prior existing beings. The genealogical approach tries to trace those descents in order to inform oneself primarily about 
things that one has uh, that beans have inherited from their line of descent that don't make any sense if you look at them right right now as they are. So remnants, vestiges. Uh, it's essentially a kind of thinking that is you know intrinsic to evolutionary various evolutionary theories because Nietzsche wasn't any in any way a simple Darwinist. Uh, and he, he thinks this is the right way to go about addressing the character and understanding what you're, you are yourself and also what other human beings and other beings are. If, if you want to really take account of the, the way in which they're continuing to change and that they are products of descent with modification. So since the job of the philosopher in the epoch of nihilism, as Nietzsche sees it, as creating stable systems in which truths are timeless and enduring, what does Nietzsche see the job of the philosopher now, the, the new philosopher, as he, as he calls it? I think the first uh, job of the new philosopher is to break the preceding, uh, the pattern of his predecessors and embrace an affirmative approach that doesn't lead to a, a, a nihilistic spiral. So that's the first job. But part of that means embracing the changeability of things, not insisting on permanence and absolutism. Being experimental is, a, I think, a very important part of the job of the new philosopher. Uh, recognizing maybe something like this, that we we don't really yet know fully what human beings are, and maybe because of their changing character, we can't know fully what they will be. And so there's an invitation to experiment and try out different kinds of human lives and different kinds of human arrangements, institutions, and systems for relating human beings with the understanding that there is no safe and sound and simply healthy default position that we can accept without question and without thought. So I guess going back to the genealogy of morals, <clears throat> he identifies he identifies two moral systems. One is called the good and the bad, and the other is the good and evil. Um, good and bad identifies with, I guess, the older moral system of maybe the Greeks or maybe even the ancient Hebrews. And the uh, moral system of good and evil, he identifies this with Christianity and just the epoch of nihilism. Where did the turn from good and bad to good and evil occur in history, according to Nietzsche? So I, I think if I, if I have to try to give a precise date, I don't think I can do that. Uh, but Nietzsche tells, I think, this general story uh, about the turn from the original morality of good and bad to the response and reaction to it, the reality, uh, the morality of good and evil that is essentially a tactic employed in a power struggle, maybe even back in human prehistory, but most, most prominently in Nietzsche's analysis happening within the, the, community of the Jewish people itself and in the emergence, I think, as you rightly say, of Christianity ultimately. So maybe just a, a brief statement could be made about the two moralities. The first morality of good and bad, Nietzsche says, really originates 
in the moral creative act of a triumphant ruling people, a conquering people that just feels good about itself in its own self-assessment as honestly as it can and calls itself and its and the people that belong to itself and those who are like them good and then has a secondary principle the bad which is essentially everybody else everyone who's not like those ruling people and there's not much thought put into the the notion of the bad it's just whatever's left over this is an essential immediate affirmative assertion by a group of people that feels powerful and adequate and untroubled by their condition in the world after the such a people has been in existence for some time, Nietzsche suggests there might be a kind of division amongst the ruling class between those who are more active, outgoing, direct, and those who are less active, who have some aversion to action and particularly aversion to things like blood and dirt and things like that, who might adopt more priestly roles in, in that ruling class. And once that division happens between a kind of ruling warrior class and a co-ruling priestly class, there's a, a, a rivalry and an opposition between them. And the priestly class, I think Nietzsche indicates, tends to um, degenerate because it realizes it can't effectively oppose in direct action, in battle, their warrior rivals. And so the priests become more and more I think, inward dwelling and frustrated. And they tend to develop psychic issues, psychic dissatisfactions for the frustration of not being able to let out their urges. This makes them degenerate more and more in the direction of the oppressed underclass that itself has suffered the same kind of psychic hindrances and frustrations as a result of, of being conquered or of being ruled by a class that separates itself from them. So it's a, the origin of the rival morality of good and evil comes out of pent up and psychically complicated frustrations that try to recast the public consciousness of and the public language that describes what is right and wrong, what is praiseworthy, what is admirable, what is not admirable, as a weapon to try to overcome those that are ruling over them and that they can't overcome in a direct physical confrontation. So it, the morality of good and evil is part of an unannounced subterranean psychic war that tries to convince those who are in power and who feel good about themselves, who have instincts of nature that they approve of, that they shouldn't feel good about themselves, that their instincts are wrong, that they are evil. So the, the people who were claimed to be good in the previous morality are now called evil. And that's the primary moral creation in this revolt that it gives rise to the morality of good and evil. Evil is the primary value and good is just the negation of the evil. So it's a, it's a kind of empty or negative concept. This is what emerges. This is what gives rise to, in a way, a rejection of this world in favor of another world. It tries to get human beings to 
deny that what they feel good about themselves and their own natural behaviors. Um, it tries to get them to say those things are wrong, it tries to get them to fight against themselves, to make them feel that life on this world is not worthy and uh, that it's full of suffering and misery and that something other than the world as we experience it is necessary for their lives. <laughs> so is Nietzsche's answer just to simply go back to the moral system of good and bad? Or does he want to supersede both good and bad and good and evil into something completely new? I, I guess I would say, uh, I don't think he imagines that you can have things that are completely new because I, as I said before, with regard to genealogy, what comes into being comes into being from things that have already existed and it, it inherits and inherits things from them. So whatever comes next will inherit what came before. That also means it's uh, very hard, maybe not even possible to go back in a simple sense. But I should also point out, and I think this is very important to Nietzsche, he thinks that the revolt in morality that led to the promotion of the morality of good and evil, the morality that has dominated the Western world for more than two millennia, he thinks that that gave rise to a substantial development in the human intellect. And I don't, Nietzsche doesn't want to throw that away or relinquish that accomplishment, but he wants to free it from having emerged as a consequence of essentially psychic illness. That is the, the great frustration of the oppressed is mingled in, their, in with the creation that they uh, are responsible for Nietzsche wants to free that creation from its origins in sickness and try to find a way so that human beings of the future can retain their great interiority, their tremendous developments of intellect while achieving something that's like the kind of affirmative, healthy, self-honestly healthy self-appraisal that the primitive noble human beings who were responsible for the morality of good and bad experienced in their own lives. So he's trying to, in, in essence, put together the two moralities in such a way that they work together. And that uh, especially, I think that the new acquisitions uh, from this, the morality of good and evil can be turned uh, into healthy uh, aspects of life rather than unhealthy ones. Interesting. Um, so I believe that's all the time we have for today. I highly recommend the book. And uh, we usually end our interviews with asking our guests, are there any future projects or plans that they're working on? Well, I'll be uh, publishing, I think, a, a translation of um, three Maxim books that Nietzsche left in his notebooks in the near future with, with Political Animal Press. Are those uh, part of the early writings or part of the mature works? They're uh, from the years 1882, 1883. So it's a time when he, Nietzsche had just fin is just finishing um, the, f the first four books of The Gay Science, which is what he had published as the original version. And it's before he wrote Zarathustra and Beyond Good and Evil. It contains a lot of material that made Nietzsche adapted and changed and used in those works later on.
but also material that he never published elsewhere. Fascinating. So I think that's all the time we have today. Uh, Until next time, see you later. Bye.